From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, thanks for being with us on this Family Day weekend. Family Day itself, I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill. You know, it's interesting every time there is one of these long weekends, and especially if you travel around the province, you tend to notice a lot more speed enforcement. And that's one of the easier ones, I think. But are we doing enough on the whole when it comes to prioritizing the real dangers and making sure that we're safe in all the different categories from, oh, those actions that may not be so safe when it comes to our highways? And I say this in light of what happened late last week when we finally got word about that trucking company involved in several overpass strikes Yeah, the license to operate in the province was finally pulled. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming held a news conference and uh, said a formal cancellation notice was issued on Thursday to Chohan Freight Forwarders Limited. This for its BC operations and this one specifically relating to a incident in North Delta on Highway 99 where it scraped the underside of an overpass and caused yet another one of those overpass accidents. Can you call them accidents? They're really preventable, so maybe that's even a term that we should avoid. Let's bring in Kyla Lee and talk a little bit about this and a little bit about priorities on the whole. Kyla, thanks so much. Kyla Lee, of course, a traffic lawyer who knows the ins and outs of all the rules and what uh, ends up in court in the right way. Kyla, happy Family Day. Happy Family Day. Thanks for having me. What do you make of this this trucking company uh, finally getting uh, its license pulled? Is this something that would stand up in court? I know they're going to challenge it. They've said that. But uh, is it something that uh, can be challenged? Well, I mean, any discretionary decision exercised by a government um, official or an adjudicator on behalf of the government can be challenged in court. The difficulty is those types of decisions are challenged on what's known as a standard of reasonableness, um, which is whether essentially it was uh, within a range of acceptable outcomes um, that were justified and transparent. And in this case, it was very transparent. The government gave plenty of warning to the public what they were going to do for, for the these incidents generally and plenty of warning to the company about what they were going to do. They gave uh, lots of opportunity to fix the problems and it did not get corrected. So on the standard that a court would apply on a review of this decision, I think it would be very difficult uh, to justify uh, uh, overturning the decision to cancel the license. Now, we're not lawyers for the company, but I wonder if and I've seen so many stories uh, that have come to light after this about uh, warning systems in other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. I think Alberta has got a warning system that is quite different and uh, more proactive for truckers. Are those the type of things that might come into a court on appeal or is that uh, something that does not even come up? It's likely not something that comes up because it's not uh, something that went into the decision maker's mind at the time they made the decision to cancel the license. But what is interesting to know is that the government has already put legislation and passed legislation that's going to come into effect later this year that will require all commercial vehicles to have these warning systems installed and require them to... 
to be notified if like a, a dump truck portion lifts up to an overheight level before they get to the overpass. It's interesting when we have legislation coming up, so we know that action is going to be taken, further action is going to be taken coming up. Does that play into enforcement right now? Do uh, do police forces kind of take so, any sort of greater action knowing that, you know, the, the laws are going to change again? Uh, they can't take any extra action knowing that the change in the law is coming, but it might sort of inform how heavily they're enforcing something. It, you know, the more that the police know that changes to the law are coming, the more likely it is they're going to be out there and engaging with people who could be affected by the law in order to educate them about upcoming changes in the law. We see these often with any type of changes to motor vehicle laws where police do more enforcement of existing laws and then also use that as an opportunity to educate people saying, you know, in just a few months, this is going to change. This is what's going to be required, so you better make sure that you're prepared for that because you don't want to get stopped again. Kyla, I'm not talking about this company. I'm going to talk about companies on a whole. And if I was the owner of a trucking company, I might want to rest uh, rest assured that it's the drivers that are taking responsibility, not me. Maybe they're independent contractors, maybe they're employers, but they've got responsibility. And could I... As a company owner, just kind of say, as long as I issue memos, tell them that they've got to, you know, check the height of trucks, do all the safety procedures, I'm off the hook. Uh, you you can't just be off the hook on the basis of the fact that you're a company. So we have something called a national safety code. It's it's used across Canada, but it's administered provincially. Um, and so anytime a, a trucking company has a driver um, who's operating under their national safety code certificate, get some sort of a strike against them, that also goes against the company. It can trigger um, additional consequences for the company, including inspections and fines. Essentially, if you're employing drivers, it's your responsibility in your industry to make sure that those drivers are following the law, to encourage them to do so, and to take corrective action if you know they aren't before incidents happen. You know, Kyla, for many of us who have worked around newsrooms, and certainly I've had a few conversations myself uh, saying things like, I can't believe it's happened again. I can't believe it's happened again when it comes to trucks hitting overpasses. Yourself, when you see this story and you've dealt with so many different traffic cases, period. What comes to mind? What is your feeling? Well, you know, I, I too, as a member of the public and a taxpayer who has to pay for these damages, just like everybody else, you know, I do get frustrated when it continues to happen. But I think it's symptomatic of, of larger problems that we have within this industry, um, both with insufficient amounts of regulation about who can and how people can come uh, become drivers. We saw a lot of changes come into place after the Humboldt accident, for example. There are more changes and more training that should be required in these circumstances. Um, And there's also problems with the pressures of the industry. You know, in order to keep costs down, drivers need to do as many deliveries and make as many um, uh, destinations and drop-offs as possible in a short period of time. Um, And there's a lot of pressure that comes from the companies themselves to keep people on an impossible-to-adhere-to schedule, which leads to drivers taking shortcuts because they feel that pressure and they don't want to lose their job for underperforming so they take shortcuts when it comes to public safety. When we're talking about this, I start to think about other ministries and other regulations that may come into play with the industry, and many of them have nothing whatsoever to do with the Ministry of Transportation. There may be the Ministry of Labor and that sort of thing. Does it make it more complicated? 
it does make it more complicated. And it also makes it more complicated that you're dealing with sort of shared responsibilities between the provincial and the federal governments. Well, you know, obviously road and highway safety is a provincial responsibility. When you get into transportation and, and trucking, there are additional Transport Canada requirements that are in place. Um, and, you know, depending on where a company is incorporated, different labor laws, because if you're, you know, if your certificate is out of Alberta and you're operating in British Columbia, the labor laws become different. So uh, it can get really complicated and that makes it much more difficult for governments to actually regulate and intervene when there are companies that are maybe putting too much pressure on their drivers to perform and therefore compromising public safety. And this is Bruce Claggett in for Jill and we've been talking about enforcement on the roads and oh yeah that action taken by the province last week BC cancelling a trucking company's ability to operate. Wow. That's a big move. And of course, it came in light of so many different overpasses being struck by trucks. Not just this one company, of course, although they had several. But this is one of those safety issues the province had to address. But let's be real. This is also the long weekend, the family day weekend. And I don't know about you, but myself, when I do travel on a long weekend, I happen to notice There's a lot more enforcement, especially if I go into the interior. I see uh, radar traps everywhere. In fact, it's become the family game in the car. Uh, My son, my wife, myself, we see how many between here and the Okanagan, all over where we go, how many we can count each way, going up and coming down on a long weekend. Kyla Lee. Am I off base on this or is this a reality that there is more enforcement at times because it's just easier to catch? Oh, absolutely. There's definitely more enforcement on uh, long weekends because it's easier to catch drivers. You have people who are driving recreationally as opposed to sort of the weekday drivers who are doing their daily commute and kind of adjusted to a routine that incorporates reasonable following of the rules of the road. Um, The other reason we see more enforcement, though, on long weekends is oftentimes police will get little sort of bumps of funding from ICBC or other organizations um, to try and get more police officers out on the roadways during those long weekends. Um, and that can lead to them actually being able to pay for more overtime. Now, Kyla, where is the tie, if there is one, between what's the most dangerous and what's causing accidents and where the enforcement is? I mean, speed really does still maintain its status as, as you know, the number one killer on, on the roads, just because we don't stop making fast cars. We've only made cars faster every year. Um, so we just are basically encouraging people to speed um, by giving them these vehicles that can do it. Whereas with impaired driving um, and even distracted driving, you know, there have been more advances in technology to actually prevent these things from, from taking place. Newer cars have so many more built-in features to connect to your phone to prevent you from having to pick it up or look at it while you're driving. And of course, uh, alcohol-impaired driving um, is dealt with by some pretty strict laws in British Columbia, as well as a lot of enforcement, particularly around sort of the high drinking time seasons. Uh, And that's the other one I wanted to get to. Those high drinking times or so-called high drinking times, because I see lots of counterattack enforcement during the Christmas holidays and at New Year's, Mm -hmm. but I don't see it so much at any other time of the year. We used to see it a bit in the summer. What's going on there? 
So Counterattack is a specially funded program that pays, again, for overtime and additional police officers to do specific targeted enforcement for impaired driving. Um, And they only do it at certain times of the year just because, you know, money is tight. It's very expensive to have a lot of police officers on the road. And especially because we have so many other concerns that police officers are dealing with, whether that's right or wrong, it takes a lot of resources away from all the other community-based concerns that police are dealing with to put them manning roadblocks and standing out there for several hours, stopping drivers and checking for impairment. You know, the one thing that I don't see is enforcement when it comes to drivers who are just, I don't know, just terrible, dangerous drivers. Yeah, you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about, Kyla. These are the ones that uh, kind of get aggressive when you're out on the road and, um, and do a lot of things that you think... I may have been in an accident, and if it wasn't me, it was going to be somebody around me. Is there any enforcement of that, or is it just too difficult to prove what's going on? It's very difficult to prove. Um, there's a number of reasons for this. First, if you know, if a police officer doesn't actually witness the incident, and it's rare to see sort of roving police officers doing traffic enforcement these days, if they don't witness the incident, they have to reply, rely on a report from the public. And that can make it very difficult to identify who was the driver of the vehicle um, in order to issue a ticket to a driver. Unless police are able to identify the driver, they can only issue a ticket to the owner. That has no points. It doesn't go on the driving record. It's just a fine. So it's basically just an inconvenience for someone who wants to drive like a jerk. Kyla, we do have one call from Parksville and Mike. Mike, happy family day. You have a question for Kyla. Yeah, I'm just wondering if anybody's looked at uh, what's the pay that they're doing? Uh, I know a lot of these companies have all gone to owner-operators instead of company drivers. So uh, is it the owner-operators hitting or are they company men? Uh, are they getting paid mileage or by the hour? Because it's all changing so many to owner-operators to try to get the liability off the freight company. Okay, I think we're getting back to talking about the trucking companies and the truckers with striking overpasses. And I don't know how much of that Kyla can actually answer, except maybe when it comes back to the responsibility again for driver or company. Yes, I mean, I, I certainly don't know about, um, you know, how companies break down their, their pay or how they're paying individuals based on mileage or, or deliveries or, or whatever targets they're using. Um, but what I can say is that even if you're an owner-operator, if you're working under sort of the badge of a carrier, then you can still have carrier consequences associated to both the carrier, so the, the company that you're working for, as well as to yourself as the owner-operator of your specific vehicle. And it all depends on how that NSC code is applied to you and to your potential carrier. Mike, I appreciate the phone call. Kyla, yourself, I've never asked you this before. We've talked many times, but uh, are you a driver who drives safely and under the speed limit? (laughs) Well, I would be pretty foolish to say anything otherwise. Well, true enough, (laughs) true enough. Uh, But no, I, 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 I drive like most people drive. I drive slightly above the speed limit most of the time, but not so fast above the speed limit that I'm, you know, at risk of getting pulled over. I, I go essentially with the flow of traffic. Well, so the appreciate your end, candor. You know, <laughs> okay. Just about 10 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if you're doing that, you're not likely to get pulled over and, and get a ticket. Yes, it is still against the law and you shouldn't do it. But the reality is that that, that is the flow of traffic and it often is 
safer, objectively speaking, to go with the flow than to be the lone car going slow and going against Wise them. words, Kyla Lee. Thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Jill is off today. I'm Bruce Claggett in for her. Oh, and it is family day and everybody likes free stuff. And here's a giveaway to start off the week. And especially for this family day, there is a new contest. And that contest has the giveaway of each and every day, but especially today, a four pack of tickets to the Outdoor Adventure Show and BC Bike Show. It's happening on March 2nd and 3rd at the Vancouver Convention Center. Don't phone yet. I'll give you details in just a second. To win these tickets, you will need to call the contest line and leave your craziest camping story on there. And yes, one of those camping stories is going to win the four-pack of tickets. Now, the phone number to call, 604-331-2877. That is the contest line. Share your craziest camping story for a four-pack of tickets to the Outdoor Adventure Show and BC Bike Show, 604-331-2877. You can call now, leave the story recorded there, and uh, we'll choose the best one. And that person will win the four-pack of tickets interesting story here. You know, even after a court ruling, British Columbians had seen back the plastics ban. Yeah, most of us here in this province remain in favor of a ban on single-use plastics, according to a poll from Research Co. The ban, which includes things like grocery bags and straws and stir sticks, those rings, those six-pack rings, plastic forks and knives and spoons, and oh yeah, takeout containers, all made from the hard-to-recycle plastics. Well, that was first introduced by the federal government back in December of 2022. Now, back this past November, November 2023, the federal court overturned the ban, considering the policy unreasonable and unconstitutional. So what say you? Well, in an online survey, according to Research Co., 71% of of British Columbians support banning single-use plastics in this country. 24%, only a quarter, less than a quarter, are opposed, and 6% are undecided. Those numbers surprise me a bit. Let's bring in the pollster, Mario Canseco. Happy Family Day and good afternoon, Mario. Happy Family Day, Bruce. Great to be here with you. Got to ask you, seriously, were you surprised by this number? I am. I was. You know, one of the reasons for this is uh, this really speaks to the complexities of implementing any policy across the country. We have British Columbians who have dealt with this type of ban municipally for the past three or four years in Vancouver, in Surrey, in some municipalities in Vancouver Island. Then we have the regulations that the BC government brought in uh, last month, which are essentially dealing with uh, with those uh, takeout food containers. But the the issue of the federal ban, uh, which was very supported by many people uh, when we asked a couple of years ago, 
uh, it's now turning into something that is more negative. You know, we, what we've always seen the level of, uh, of uh, animosity towards this policy at around 10 or 15 percent. Now it's up to 24. We could point to the 71 percent and say most people want this, but there's one out of four who are really upset with the situation and believe that nothing should be changed. Okay. And that's where there is often a difference between numbers. 71 percent could say, yeah, kind of a bad idea. 24 percent. Uh, I'm mad and I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, and, and I always find that interesting. You know, I'm one of the people that got shocked, I guess, when I went through a drive through for the first time ever. I was given my food and uh, no bag. And I thought, oh, really? And then I had to think, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's because they have to be, you know, recyclable or if not from hard to recycle plastics. And it's a whole different deal. But it shocked me because I thought to myself, do I have to explain that I need a bag? And those type of things, I think when reality hits, it takes a little bit of an adjustment in our thinking. It's going to be very complicated. Uh, And, you know, we can always look back at the way we used to deal with garbage. And we were one of the first uh, communities in the world here in British Columbia uh, that started to deal with recycling. They started to separate specific types of trash. And it took a lot of getting used to. You know, people weren't happy with this. They wanted to throw everything the same way. It took a couple of years for everybody to come on board, so to speak, and to look at this as something that was going to be beneficial for everybody. I think part of what is happening is that a little bit of the rejection that we see towards the federal uh, government's decision is politically motivated. We have 35 to 54-year-old British Columbians as the group that is most likely to be opposed to the decision to ban single-use plastics. And it's not a significant majority by any extent, but it's a group that is starting to struggle with other facets of life. Maybe you have young kids or have aging parents. You're spending a lot of money on specific things. You're worried about inflation. And this is another thing that is going to add to the animosity that you have towards the federal government. So a lot of this reaction is visceral. People who are upset and saying, oh, and now after everything that I am really unhappy with, now you're taking away my plastic bag. I'm even more upset with the Trudeau government than I was last week. You know, interesting you should say that because I'm also looking at this two-thirds of residents in northern BC, 66%. So much lower number this going back to when you actually first did the poll. Now, they're in favor of the ban on single-use plastics. So that's the lowest of the regions around uh, around the province. And the highest, uh, among the highest, uh, right here in Metro Vancouver. And I'm just looking over, oh, yeah, Southern BC are all about 70%. Guess what? That falls almost in line with politics, doesn't it? It does. You know, part of the situation here is what we have seen when it comes to the way people become more environmentally friendly. And you know, we can go back to uh, 2006, 2007, before the global financial crisis hit. Um, most British Columbians said that the environment was the number one issue for them, uh, more than housing, more than healthcare, more than the economy and jobs. When we had uh, the global financial crisis, everything shifted. People were more likely to be worried about their jobs 
And now we have a, a, a significant amount of residents who are worried about housing, then healthcare, and to a lesser extent, the economy and jobs. But when the last time we asked British Columbians about the issues, the environment uh, was in the low single digits. And this is definitely problematic when you're trying to sell the idea that this is going to be beneficial for everybody and people are more likely to be concerned with healthcare, with housing and with the economy and jobs. It's going to be very difficult for the government to establish that emotional connection that gets us to change the way we behave. On the whole, is the environment really kind of a big city issue? Well, I think it's changed. You know, we we used to look at Vancouver Island as the place that was more likely to be environmentally friendly. You know, part of what it means living on an island, making sure that everything that you bring there has to go out, um, figuring out ways in which you can transport yourself without spending a lot of money on gas. Um, That was the area that really typified the way in which uh, Canadians used to feel about environmental issues. Um, What we've seen over the past few years is Quebec, particularly younger Quebecers, saying that they're more likely to be doing things and to deal with the environment and to make some of the sacrifices, if you will, uh, to ensure that they're leaving a smaller carbon footprint. And the reality when we ask British Columbians about specific things is that we haven't seen that change. You know, part of the reason for the ban on single-use plastics was this is going to make us more mindful of our own carbon footprint. And the numbers don't really change that much. When we ask British Columbians, do you recycle all the time? 48% say yes. Um, Do you limit hot water usage in your home? Only 21% say yes all the time. So it's definitely complex. Part of the reason for this policies was this is going to make us more mindful, but our own behavior isn't changing the same way. Do you think it's other issues that are overshadowing the environmental issues? Or is it that, uh, as you point out, uh, our minds just don't change? Well, I think when we look back to The way in which the carbon tax was implemented in B.C., I think that gives us an idea of the way in which you can definitely motivate uh, uh, the the voter to react uh, in a very positive way to what you're selling. Um, At the time, this came out from a B.C. liberal government. Uh, Everybody got a check of $100 so you could make your light bulbs better. Uh, We had a very flashy campaign related to the role that British Columbia was going to play in the world. And the level of opposition towards the carbon tax wasn't high. You know, people were happy with what they saw. Everybody got a rebate. This is important. We have to do it. You couldn't sell a policy in a better way if you're a government that is running. And and I think part of what we have here is we have all of these policies, some of them municipal, some of them provincial, some of them federal, and there is no cohesion. And this is making it more complicated for people to look at the issue and say that this is something that they should be acting on. So part of it is the way in which you're going to describe what is going on. You look at people in the plastics industry who say, this is going to put me out of business. And obviously they are going to have a reaction that leads to the court case uh, that finally made its way to the federal court and that essentially stopped the ban. But that is the most complicated aspect of this. What do I have as a taxpayer, as a citizen, as an incentive to change my behavior? Jill Bennett, off on this family day. I'm Bruce Claggett. We've been talking about uh, the court ruling in British Columbia and still backing the plastics ban. Research Co. out with its online survey, finding 71% of British Columbia support 
banning single-use plastics in Canada, 24% opposed and 6% undecided. That is an environmental poll and how we feel. There are other topics, Mario, out there right now. I know as a pollster, you're looking at things constantly, but what is what are the numbers and what's your gut telling you right now? What are the big issues that are emerging that uh, Canadians are really concerned about? Well, I would say the biggest change when we look back at the way Canadians were feeling about things uh, last year compared to this one has been just how far housing has climbed the charts. It's not news in British Columbia. We've had housing as the number one issue provincially for the past three or four years. It's been a a major uh, focus on the policy side of things for the opposition and the government. But what we're seeing now is the housing crunch really affecting areas of Canada that were immune to it just a couple of years ago. It's now no longer something that is happening in British Columbia to a lesser extent in Toronto and in Calgary. But now we're looking at the numbers in places like Atlantic Canada and in Quebec, where the level of concern about housing is growing. And this is coming mostly from the 18 to 34 year old demographic. You know, these are young people who want to get into the housing market, try to figure out where they're going. And it's the type of voter that is required to win elections. So we've had elections in the past where the focus is usually on health care because of the concerns of the 55 and over or the economy and jobs because of the 35 to 54 year olds. Now it's housing and the younger adults in Canada uh, who could actually decide who wins the next election. That doesn't surprise me at all. I've said uh, going back a few months ago, my gut feeling is that housing is going to be the number one issue in any federal election and quite possibly is going to trickle down to provincial and local elections, too, because, of course, every level of government also has a say in how that really pans out. Well, and it's it's a very complicated issue to implement successfully during a campaign. Um, there's always this flash when you have an announcement about having more police on the street or more doctors who are going to be hired. And this tends to really stick to the minds of the voters. Uh, housing is complicated in the sense that these are projects that take months to be to be uh, you know cobbled together. Um, you're not going to have politicians cutting a lot of ribbons when it comes to housing. And it's the kind of thing that where you need to establish an emotional connection with people. You know, somebody is not going to react very well if you tell them that you have this many thousand housing units. If somebody who you know, maybe your son, maybe your nephew or your niece are having a tough time trying to get into the market. So establishing that emotional connection with housing is significantly more complicated than to talk about the unemployment rate or about how many doctors you hire for the healthcare system. We know in the past, uh, those politicians that tend to be right of center have had a bit of a problem reaching traditionally the 18 to 30s. Is that going to change now? Now that we see housing as a growing issue and what are the 18 to 30 saying? Well, I think what we're seeing now is uh, in in a sense at the federal level, uh, the Trudeau voter from 2015, uh, 2019 and 2021 growing and requiring something different. And what we have is a sense of dissatisfaction, particularly from the younger uh, 35 to 54 year olds who voted for Trudeau and had all of these hopes. And maybe they find a country that they're not particularly happy with. 
looking into different ways of doing things. Uh, the conservatives at the federal level have connected very well with the 18 to 34 crowd. And one of the reasons is they're using the type of language that they want to hear, you know, small, short videos on YouTube, trying to figure out how to talk to people in ways that they understand. And I think that is that has been one of the revelations of the way in which the federal conservatives are doing under Pierre Poliev. You know, there was the expectation that, you know, maybe they'll get the over 55s. The over 55s are looking at Trudeau and saying things aren't as bad as the right is going to lead us to believe. Uh, but the 18 to 34 year old is saying maybe this guy has a plan that will allow me to enter the housing market. So we're going to give it a shot. Interesting to see. Love uh, taking a look at some of those shifts. Mario, always a pleasure. My pleasure, Bruce. Anytime. Thanks for spending this portion of your family day with us. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill. Well, the Bank of Canada waits for the right moment to start cutting interest rates. When will that right moment be? Some said it should be in March. That going back to what we had talked about maybe back in the summer. But some economists are arguing that its decision, whatever it is, should not hinge on the housing market. This country's inflation rate has edged up and gone down several times over the past several months after dropping from its 2022 highs as global price pressures fade and the economy cools. StatsCan is set to release its January Consumer Price Index report tomorrow. And forecasters expect the inflation rate did in fact fall. RBC, CIBC, TD, they all project the annual rate ease to about 3.2%, down from 3.4% in December. So what does that mean when it comes to what we're seeing from the Bank of Canada with its interest rate being at the level it's at, that 5, 5.0 is it going to end up coming down? Who knows? But uh, these are some of the key indicators. What does it mean for us when we have that high interest rate? Well, let's uh, bring in economist, senior economist at the Center for Policy Alternatives, David McDonald, on this family day. David, thanks so much for joining us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. You know, so many people talk about uh, the key lending rate set by the Bank of Canada. Uh, it is high. We all know that right now. Uh, not high historically, but high compared to what many of us are used to. Is it hurting Canadians? Oh, certainly. Certainly it's hurting Canadians. I mean, anybody with a mortgage is pretty clear uh, that they're getting hit pretty hard. Anyone uh, that's renting is getting hit pretty hard. Um, one of the interesting features of higher interest rates is they work in the economy by making housing much more expensive. Uh, and so the idea is if you have a mortgage, if you are renting, uh, you know, rents are going up because landlords have mortgages and then they pass those increased costs on to tenants. Uh, the idea is that you have, uh, you're spending so much more in this category of the inflation index, this housing part, uh, that you don't have as much money to spend in other categories of the inflation index. And the hope is that in, in the aggregate, uh, you see inflation come down. We're in the interesting situation, given the incredibly high debt levels that we have right now, that high interest rates are driving inflation at this point. Uh, the Bank of Canada actually wrote about this in their last uh, big financial report that came out with the, the last announcement. 
Uh, they have a, a section on it that shows that as we move into 2023, 2024, further into this year, uh, that an increasing portion of the higher interest rate will be due exclusively to shelter services. Uh, this is the part where you see uh, mortgage and rent contained. Uh, so there's no relief in sight uh, in tomorrow's announcement, likely, uh, on those two fronts. Although I think what will be interesting is that we will almost certainly see uh, a fairly big decline in food price inflation. This is for food purchased in stores. It's not that the price of food has gone down, but rather the big increases in food prices. We actually saw about this time last year uh, with a big increase, month-to-month increase in January of 2023. Uh, and so as we get the January figures tomorrow, um, that big increase will be incorporated. And so it will have timed out of the series in essence. And so what that will mean is from an inflation perspective, uh, the rate of change will be a fair amount smaller comparing January 2023 to January 2024. You know, as a British Columbian, I've got to ask myself, and I'm looking for some sort of answer, what has the Bank of Canada actually done with higher interest rates that is a benefit for anyone what has the bank done for you lately? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is the theory, is that higher interest rates yield lower inflation. And so this is the basic premise that the bank is going under. And certainly, if you increase interest rates quickly enough, you will get a recession and you'll get lower inflation as a result of a recession. But that's not um, happening. We, yeah, interestingly, yeah. So we've avoided a recession. I mean, we, we were pretty close at the end of 2023, we had the the negative third quarter, and it was certainly plausible that we were going to get a, a flat or negative fourth quarter. That's almost certainly not the case now. Uh, some of the monthly numbers have come in, which we get prior to the quarterly numbers, and and they were they were actually relatively strong. And so we're we're almost certainly not going to see a recession in 2023 at the tail end of that year. Um, the labor market through this period has remained. You know, unemployment has certainly risen over the course of 2023, but uh, hourly wage growth has been going up as well as workers try to claw back their lost wages that they saw over the inflationary period. And so at this point, you know, we are in the, in the, in the area of a soft landing, which is to say we haven't seen a recession. We haven't seen a huge increase in the unemployment rate. It's gone up by by about a point now, almost a point, um, which should be concerning. But, it, you know, we aren't it, we're certainly not. I mean, historically speaking, it's quite low. Um, and so we're still in an OK circumstance in terms of inflation. Uh, you know, it's likely to come down with this January number. Um, so we saw 3.4 uh, last month or sorry, the December number was 3.4 percent. Um, that's roughly where the bank thinks it uh, it would have been in any event. Uh, and so we're likely to see it slightly lower this month, in large part because of that uh, grocery store food price uh, inflation value coming down. It'll still be over 3% for sure, um, but it'll be lower. And so, um, you know, in, in this regard, I mean, the question of when when might we see the interest rate actually start to fall I was interesting to to hear uh, Tiff Macklem in a recent speech where he, this is paraphrased, but he he, he essentially said, uh, you know, we're no longer looking at uh, how much more we need to take out of the economy. Now we're looking at uh, when we need to to start cutting interest rates, and so we're almost certainly at the peak. I mean, that's what that that 
indicated. And so the question is, when do you start seeing cuts? Interestingly, if we saw cuts sooner, we would, we would actually see lower inflation because of the impact that these, that these really high interest rates are having on mortgage interest, which is part of the inflation index, as well as rent, which is also part of the inflation index. I'm not sure that's the type of calculus that we're seeing uh, from the Bank of Canada. You know, it's more of a traditional analysis of inflation that you, you know, there, there is this relationship between inflation and interest rates. Interest rates go up, inflation goes down. That's just the way it is um, versus a more practical outlook, which is in the case of a very over leveraged, very indebted household sector in Canada, um, you're just not seeing that relationship, particularly when inflation wasn't driven by many of these underlying factors, but it was driven by things that were happening outside of Canada, like the price of oil or the price of uh, gasoline. For and I wonder if that is actually key this over-leveraged household uh, is really changing the rules, and especially when it comes to the cost of housing, when we're spending so much on housing and we're over-leveraged there, either uh, through necessity or desire, you're really going to see rules that uh, don't apply to what the Bank of Canada really thinks is going to make a difference. Am I off yeah, base? Yeah, the Bank of Canada notes exactly that that they had that they that they were surprised by how quickly mortgage interest costs rose as they pushed up the interest rate. Uh, that the reaction was, uh, you know, the impact was so large. I mean, the other thing that we have to understand, and one of the key ways that higher interest rates on the economy is that it reduces uh, uh, private sector investment in uh, new builds. And so we've seen a big decline in new housing construction, which you might think this is crazy because all we need is more houses, right? We need more supply, all governments at all levels, everyone wants more supply. Uh, But the Bank of Canada has managed to drive down supply as a result of high interest rates, uh, in part because people, uh, there's been a lot less volume, people are less interested in buying houses. But it also changes the uh, the underlying economics of housing developers. So they're not sure if they can move the houses but they're also paying more in interest themselves because remember they have to build these homes and float the cost of building these homes until they can sell them at the end. And if the interest rate on that, you know, the loans they have to take out to float those costs has gone up, then maybe the economics don't work for them anymore. And so we are seeing that play out of a much uh, smaller, uh, you know, we've actually over the last couple of months seen um, new home construction dip to below levels that we saw during the pandemic, during the worst of the pandemic as a result of high interest rates. And so you just get this set of features where interest rates are decreasing the number of houses built, increasing inflation because of the role that they play in mortgage interest costs and rent. Um, So, I mean, this is, I've been arguing that now is the time, not three or six months from now, to decrease interest rates. Uh, I'm not sure that the bank is the bank certainly not calling me up for advice, uh, but we will see whether, uh, you know, I think at this point, given the relatively strong economic news that we saw in the last couple months of 2023, that this means that we will actually wait longer at these higher interest rates before we see some relief in 2024. We're talking with David McDonald, senior economist at the Center for Policy Alternatives. David, when we Take a look at uh, the Bank of Canada and the Bank of Canada holding on to this uh, rate, which is higher than it has been. Is the effect the same on all regions of the country, or do we see something different in a housing shortage area like BC, which really has uh, such high prices compared to the rest of the country, and it's a different game out here? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a couple factors to consider. Um, certainly, the the impact is going to be largest where you've got the highest debt load, and so you've got more debt per household. You're going to see a bigger impact there of higher interest rates. Yeah, as well, it depends on incomes, and so if you've got higher incomes that have managed to keep pace or exceed the rate of inflation, then you might actually be in a slightly better off position, um, even if you know your debt load is higher. So, just as an example, um, if we take a look at private sector employees working for private companies, they've managed to get back to a little bit above where they stood in 2021 prior to inflation really taking off. If you compare that, say, to the public sector, um, you know, hospitals and um, uh, education and public administration, they're still well below where they stood in, in 2021. And so insofar as your population mix delves more towards the private sector, those folks have seen a better recovery than folks in the, in the public sector. Um, and so, I mean, the, the other thing, too, is, is it depends uh, the impact on local home builders and their willingness to continue to, to build more houses, even at these higher interest rates, is going to depend on how high the, the house prices are vis-a-vis their cost of production. And so, you know, how much does it cost them to get labor? And so, so I haven't looked at B.C. versus other areas of the country, for instance, to see whether there's been a larger or smaller impact. But certainly, if you've got a big mortgage, uh, big changes in the interest rate make a big difference to you. I should also say that um, we're not actually even at the full impact yet of these higher interest rates. And we won't be until about June of this year. June will be um, about the, you know, the interest rate increases started uh, two years ago in yeah. March, but they didn't really pick up pace until the summer. And it will be June when half of mortgage holders in Canada will have had to renew at higher rates. And this and is so- also where I'm a little bit more worried than the average bear. Uh, David, when we come up to June, when we've got more mortgage renewals coming up, but we also have people that have tolerated a certain amount of increasing debt. Isn't that a dangerous combination? Oh, yeah. It's certainly a dangerous conversa- uh, uh, a combination in, in 2024 where you get these trends coming together. Um, you get more people renewing at these higher interest rates. Um, you know, we'll hit half in June. Um, you have potentially more time for interest rates to impact the economy and potentially employment. And so you see this rising level of unemployment rate. Um, this is where it gets to be a more dangerous situation where potentially these trends intersect, where people are owing a lot more on their mortgages that they just renewed, but they lose their job. Okay, um, before we let you go dangerous. then, let's, uh, let's leave it with any sort of bright light, uh, anything that you're looking at on the horizon that may actually end up being good news. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, the wage growth has been relatively strong. I mean, we're at now, we're, we're, we're closing in now on uh, about 18 months of workers seeing real wage gains, wages uh, growing at faster than the rate of inflation, unlike what they saw in 2021 and 2022. So it's great to see that workers are seeing wage gains. Unemployment, while it has gone up, is still relatively low. And so the labor market remains quite a, a strong point for, uh, for the last year or two. There you go. Some good news. David, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.